Okay, so I do want to speak to you along the theme of revival again this morning. And we've been looking at that the last couple of times that I've preached. And uh, uh, the first message I preached was just simply called Revival, Why We Need It. And I gave three reasons. I said because of our personal condition, we need God to revive us. I said because we need an overflow of revival into this nation. And I, th- I said thirdly, because God promises revival. And uh, that's, if you missed that message, please listen to it. And then we also had some um, exciting stories to share from church history. Remember, I, I read some things out of Tertullian, who's a Christian, early Christian writer, who just talked about the impact of the church in the first century. And there were other people like uh, Suetonius and Tacitus and Pliny, who were all Roman historians. And they wrote amazing things about what actually happened in the first century. It's incredibly encouraging to read extra-biblical evidence which confirms what... Um, what the church was like and what it was doing. And then the second week, the last time, last week, I looked at revival and took the title of my message from uh, the Hebrides revival under Duncan Campbell in 1949. And I simply called the message, a, com- a community saturated with God. And uh, as we were trying to define what re- revival is and what it means, um, we had to look at that, the community saturated with God. And we looked at the first great awakening, remember, under Whitfield Wesley and Jonathan Edwards. And we looked at the second great awakening in the 1800s under Charles Finney. And we tried to, I tried to encourage you that we can understand how revival works in one of two ways. Either we can be centered around God and his sovereignty and what he does by the power of his spirit, or we could be centered around men and what we can do and our gifts and scientific methods of trying to bring revival. And... Um, I think you know by now where my, my priority lies is with the work of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that God can bring revival. Uh, there's something in me which wants to preach about revival, but then I know this, that the more that I preach about revival, the greater the, the measure of disappointment can be in people when it doesn't come, when it doesn't happen. And I think if it doesn't happen, what I'm trying to say is if you are pushing into the sovereignty of God, then I don't think you'll, you'll fear that. Because God will move whenever he wants to move. And we just prepare ourselves and get ourselves ready. So, And remember, I looked at a guy called William Sprague, who wrote that book called Lectures on Revivals and Religion. And I said there were five things that are present when revivals are happening. One, extraordinary prayer. Two, a rediscovery of the grace gospel, remember. Three, uh, even in our counseling that we apply the gospel to the heart, in people's hearts, and we use the gospel to counsel people. And fourthly, a testimony of revived individuals. And I said, not only leaders are revived, but there's extraordinary um, things that happen in, in, the, in the congregation. People get born again. The, the person that you least expect to get born again suddenly comes to Christ, and it encourages the whole community. Yeah? And, um, and then I said, ongoing instituted means of grace, that is preaching, prayer, worship, getting together in each other's homes, those things carry on in an extraordinary way when revival happens. And so what I'd like to do this morning is just to look at an Old Testament story of revival. And I'd like to talk to you about Hezekiah. Hezekiah is an amazing chap. Uh, we first meet Hezekiah in the book of Kings when he's about 25. He's a young man, and it's about 1716 B.C. And we don't know very much about Hezekiah other than that his father was Ahaz and his mother was Abijah. And uh, the life of his, his father is quite well documented. So I want, I want you to please go with me to 2 Kings chapter 17. And we're going to have a look at a couple of scriptures just to paint a picture of what it was like. 2 Kings 17. And it says in verse 40, it says this. 
I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says, however, they would not listen, but they did according to their former manner. And these nations feared the Lord and also served carved images. And their children did likewise, and their children's children as their fathers did. So they do this to this day. So there's a state of decay in Judah. And at this time, there's two separate nations. There's Judah in the north, and there's Israel in the south, all right? They've got two separate kings. And there's been this steady decline for generations and generations. And if you read the book of Kings, you'll see that one king comes to power, and he does well. And then another king comes to power, and he doesn't do well. And there's this constant vacillation as people honor God and don't honor God. And the state of the nation goes up and down like this. And that should be a... That should be a, a, a an encouragement to us. It's good to honor God. When you honor God, things go well in the nation. All right? It's righteousness that exalts the nation. And it carries on in 2 Chronicles 28, if you want to go there. Um, and we read a little bit more about Ahaz. It says this of Ahaz in verse, the first four verses of 2 Chronicles 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. Isn't it interesting that these kings were quite young, huh? 28. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and his father, as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for, for the Baals, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Himon, and burned his sons as an offering, according to the abominations of the nation whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he made sacrifices and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Now, this is the state of decay under Ahaz, that they're practicing child sacrifice as a norm in the culture. This is what they do. They were worshiping pagan gods, and to honor the pagan gods, they sacrificed their children in fire. That's how bad things have got. Okay, and we read further in verse 22. It says, In the time of his stress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, the same King Ahaz. And he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him in battle and said, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them so that they might help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. And he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. And he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every city of Judah, he made a high place to make offerings to other gods, provoking the anger of the Lord, the God of his fathers. And the rest of his acts and all of his ways from the first to last, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Ahaz slept with his father and they buried his fathers, and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem. And he did not bring him into the tomb of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. So here we have the story of Judah. It's in, the, the nation is in total decline. So they're practicing child sacrifice. Sorry, is that me? Let me just see if I can twist this thing. And... Um, Ahaz gets to the point where what he does is he dismantles the temple. He takes everything out of the temple. He closes the doors. The priests are not functioning anymore. So the religious life of the nation is fragmented. True worship is lost. And they are steeped in this gross sin of sacrificing their own children. And as, as a result of that, the, the surrounding nations, surrounding Judah, like Aram, Edom, and the Philistines, they are constantly waging war and defeating the nation of, of Judah. And so that's the picture. It's not a good picture, is it? <laughs> and then there's this guy called Isaiah. Anyone heard of Isaiah? He's the prophet. And he's the one prophesying into 
the nation of Judah. And he's quite clear about what's going on. And if you read in Isaiah chapter 1, if you flip there to Isaiah chapter 1, I'm going to read verse 4, 6, and 7. And this is what Isaiah says about the nation at this time. He says, Our sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they are utterly estranged. From the soles of their feet, even to their head, there's no soundness in it, and bruises and sore, but bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed or bound or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire, and in your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, it is overthrown by foreigners. Uh, Isaiah is a very interesting man. He is passionate, <laughs> he is direct, he is full of Honest words. He doesn't beat around the bush, Isaiah. <laughs> and so here we have Isaiah speaking into the nation, into Judah. And he, um, he speaks strongly. And he has a lot to say about the surrounding nations and what they're doing in terms of their relationship with Judah and Israel. But he has even more to say to Judah. Now I want to say this. I think when we read the Old Testament, we can make a classic mistake. And this is the classic mistake we can make. We compare the state of Judah and Israel to the state of our nation. And we say, we make this comparison. And we say, well, Judah and Israel, it's like the state of our nation, the nation surrounding us. And I think that's a profound mistake. I think it misses the point completely. Because when Isaiah is speaking, when he's prophesying, Judah represented God's people. They represented the church. They represent the church. At this stage, Israel is apostate. It's backslidden. It's a, the other kingdom of Israel is backslidden. And so Israel represents for us people that are saved, but backslidden, apostate people. You understand what I'm saying? And then, certainly the surrounding nations, yes, uh, Isaiah has something to say about the surrounding nations as well. But it seems to me that when we read the Old Testament as God's people, we like to take all the promises that the prophets prophesy towards Israel and Judah, and we claim them as our own. All the promises, that's for, the, that's for us, the church. And all the judgments, <laughs> we take those and put them on the nation. So, no, those don't apply to the church, that, that applies to the nations. That applies to those that don't believe. I think that is a profound mistake. Because both the promises and the judgments in the Old Testament that the prophets prophesy apply to the church of God. They apply to Judah, the called out ones. They apply to the ones that are born again and in the local church. And they apply to Israel, who represent the apostate Christians. Those that are backslidden. I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm saying they're not part of the local church community. I do not think it is biblically possible to be a practicing Christian and not belong to a local church. It's not possible. It is not possible. Church salvation is always worked out in God's believing community. And what I've seen more and more is people say, I belong to the universal church, but I don't belong to the local church. It is absolutely impossible. I met a guy on the train this week I was going into London to see some other pastors in, in, uh, in uh, another suburb. Haven't seen this guy for four or five years. 
said, how are you doing? He told me his story, said how he's doing, had some difficulties in his families, whatever. And he was speaking all the language of Christianity, saying, I'm just trusting God. I want to be where the Holy Spirit is, wherever the Holy Spirit is. I'm going. I'm going to this conference. I'm going to that conference. I just want to see God move. I said, well, that's fantastic, mate. That's absolutely fantastic. What local church do you go to? Oh, I don't go to a local church. God hasn't called me into a local church. I haven't yet found the local church in St. Albans that I would like to be part of. I said to him in his, in his face, I said, Bud, you're not part of a church. You're never going to see revival come. God always starts with the revival in his church, in local churches. I want to encourage you. I've made it a, 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 in my own personal prayer life. I am praying for specific people that I know that are burnt stones. People who've left churches and are not part of churches anymore, and um, perhaps they blame leaders. They say, well, I didn't like what this guy did. This guy hurt me, whatever, whatever, whatever. At the end of the day, the burnt stones need to come back into the local church so that God can revive the church. And maybe you know many people as well. I was speaking to some of the leadership in the vineyard, and they also said over their history, many people have been part of the church, many people are no longer part of the church. We need to pray, every one of us, for the burnt stones to come back, the burnt stones to come back, that relationship would be restored, that God can do a mighty work of revival. I hope that encourages you, because I, I, I feel that's part of what God wants us to give our time, our energy to in prayer, burnt stones to come back. God wants to build an altar of burnt stones. Amen? All right. So, I think, if we read Isaiah now, with the lens of actually God is speaking to the church. <laughs> it takes on a whole different tone. Yeah? And, and I love Isaiah chapter 62. He says this, um, For Zion's sake, Isaiah says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. I will not stop. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. In other words, he's saying, For the church's sake, for the called out ones, for Jerusalem, for Zion, I will not keep quiet. I will not stop until I see the righteousness of the church go forth as the dawn. That's what he's saying. So I won't keep quiet. I'll keep on saying this. I'll keep on preaching it. I'll keep, I'm, and I'm not going to keep quiet. I'm going to keep on saying it until we see revival come. And he says, the nations will see your righteousness. Who's he talking about? He's, he's talking about the church. The nations will see your righteousness, the righteousness of the church. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You know what he's saying? Isaiah is saying he's going to go on preaching till the city of God... You can see that the city of God is different to the surrounding nations. I want to put it to you that most of the church is no different from the nation. Most of it is not. He says that her righteousness will become so attractive that the nations long for what they see in the church. Until the righteousness blazes like the dawn, as brightness, there's different translations say it in different ways. So my first point is this. And I really hope you are going to be encouraged this morning. If we want to see revival come, I, I think we have to have an honest and a sober look at the true state of the church. Now, I'm saying that as someone who's involved in helping to facilitate the church. We have to look at a true state of the church. There can be no hope for revival until the evangelical, the born-again church, recognizes that Isaiah is preaching to us. 
<laughs> There's so many good things in the church. I love the church. I really do love the church. I hope you would see that. I love the church. I'm passionate about the church. And I, I would rather be in the church than anywhere else. Someone said this. said the church is a bit like the ark. And it's a bit like being in the ark. It's full of funny animals. <laughs> it's full of bad smell. But rather be in the church in, under the hand of the mercy of God than out in the storm. I, I agree. There's lots wrong with the church. Lots. Uh, I think the testimony of my life uh, leading this congregation is that I made so many mistakes. I admit that. I put my hand up. But you know what? I'd rather be in the church than outside in the storm. For all the church's problems and all that it's not doing well, I want to say it's doing a lot well. I love God's church. But I want to say to you that underneath that, I also see a worldliness. I also see a, a self-centered triviality about the things of God. People don't really take the things of God seriously. The things that are really concerned on his heart, we don't take seriously. And so now I'm speaking more broadly than just this local church, but generally I would say that churches are divided. Churches are fighting. Leaders are proud. Leaders are guarding their own reputations. They're trying to build their own little empire. And I think most Christians are afraid to be any different from the world. I think most of us, uh, we don't see many salvations in churches anymore and simply grow by reshuffling the pack of Christians. And so some disgruntled ones, some individual ones move from one church to the other, grumbling as they go. I don't think that's revival. <laughs> I don't. Uh, revival comes when God does a miraculous thing and he pours his spirit out and all the fighting and all the bickering stops and he pours himself out on a congregation or community and amazing things happen and people start being saved. Can we agree on that? And I want to say to you that we are good as the church at saying what's wrong in society and saying how much society needs to change and what's wrong in the nation and oh, if only the nation would change. But you know what? The hand of God is pointing his finger at Judah, at the church, and he's saying, my people, I want you to change. And I think we can fool ourselves to think, into thinking that things are not quite as bad as they seem and, you know, the church is... It's not really doing too bad, but actually I want to say that I think it is in a state of decline. And either we trust God to revive us, or we just get happy with the decline. And I believe, as I've been saying out of the book of James, I believe God is pleading with us, God is calling us, He's wooing us, He's saying, my people come back to me in a wholehearted devotion. I love you, you're my sons, you're my daughters. Come back, come back, come back. And you know, statements like um, in Isaiah 1.18, the famous verse that I've heard quite many times, it says this, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, and though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Who do you think that's spoken to? It's not spoken to the unsaved. It is spoken to the church. It is spoken to Judah. It's God's heart. He's saying, come back to me. Revelation 3.20, I've heard this preached 
evangelistically so many times. How many of you heard this? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and he opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. You think that's about salvation? I don't. I'll tell you why I don't. Because the context is about the Laodicean church. And the context is God is saying, you are backslidden, you are lukewarm. I, will, I, I can't tolerate you in my mouth. You're neither hot nor cold. And then he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens his heart to me, I will come and sup with him. It's an invitation to the church to come back to a passionate relationship with Jesus. It's not about salvation. Can I tell you some stories? I've been reading this fantastic book by a guy called Brian Edwards, a very little-known preacher from the UK. He's written this amazing book on revival. It's fantastic. And he tells a story that in 1742, revival came to a place called Cambuslang and Kilsynth in Scotland. All right? And uh, at that time, the nation too, Scotland was at a very, very low point. And there were two faithful guys preaching, one guy called William McCulloch at Cambuslang and the, another guy called James Robe in Kilsynth. And they weren't good preachers. (laughs) They weren't good preachers. How do we know? Because history records that McCulloch was called an ale minister. (laughs) An ale minister. Because when he got up to preach on Sundays, they would leave the congregation and go for an ale at the pub. That's how bad his preaching was. That's why it's called an ale minister. The same situation of absolute lethargy and, and spiritual apathy was, it was the same in Wales in 1859 before the revival broke out. The church was asleep. It was happy in its lukewarmness. It was happy in its backsliddenness. It was no mission to the world. It was just like everybody else. It was, you couldn't distinguish the church and the world. 1830s and 1840s, the Association of the Calvinist Methodist Churches, they had a conference and they discussed the following topics. The inefficiency of the ministry. Worldliness in its relation to religion. The ungodliness of the present generation. We could be, that could be titles of a seminar that we could hold. 1733, Jonathan Edwards, remember I mentioned him on the Eastern Seaboard of America. He complained, he said, there's an extraordinary dullness in religion. Extraordinary dullness in the church. And then revival breaks out. I'm trying to encourage you because I feel like we can try as the church to big ourselves up, to like kind of say things are really going well. And, but you know, in reality, there are few people with a heart to plant churches. Very few. I was reading a, a thing this week of American statistics. 4,000 churches will close this year in America. 1,500 will be planted. Of those 1,500, 80% will fail. 20% will have any success. Just to plant a church and get off the ground is a major, major thing. The reality is that for most churches, generous giving in churches is not a reality. Leaders have to get up and beg people to come and pray. And it's difficult to get people to come to more than one meeting a Sunday. This is just the reality. (laughs) Someone said this, If the living are not alive, what hope is there for the dead? Uh, this was uh, this encouraged me. There was, you know, there's been a revival in India before. Uh, as I was researching this, there's been revivals all over the world: Indonesia, India, China. 
has had revivals all over the world, and we don't know about them because we, we, we don't look. I want to encourage you just to do some reading for yourself, and, and it's, it's so encouraging. There was a revival in India in the Assam district of India in 1905, and this is what the missionary said. He said, nearly all the members, men and women, were given to much drinking. Some smoked ganja. They quarreled. They fought. They lived immoral lives, and they shielded each other so that the missionary could not find these things out. It was almost impossible to get them to attend more than one service on a Sunday. And the one weekly service that they did have was badly attended. And the missionary often felt to give them up altogether. It seemed a hopeless church. (laughs) You know what's wonderful? When all seems hopeless, God comes through and he brings revival. So, I I did some thinking this week. And you know, that description is not as far away from describing the church in the UK as you think it is. <laughs> Most people are giving themselves to those things. Some are giving themselves to the things and pretending that no one knows, that God doesn't see. Who do we think we're fooling? <laughs> I was thinking about this and I shared with Colin, you know, this week I read that the average person in the UK watches between four to five hours of television a night. Mind-numbing, soul-destroying, X-factor television. Four to five hours a night. I wanted to watch the X-factor this year. Eh? I raised it because Candy's in it. And the first episode, the guy pulls his trousers down to reveal the name of six women tattooed on his bottom. And the judge from America, whatever her name is, applauded and said, I love being in the UK. We give ourselves to garbage. I did some maths. Four hours a day. This is conservative. Okay, four hours a day. It's 28 hours a week. That's 1,456 hours a year. You want to know how much that is in days? 61 days people spend watching television. And guys, I'm not even including the video games that you've, you've, you know, three o'clock in the morning. I'm amazed on Facebook. Some guy, four o'clock in the morning, just got to the next level. Don't you want to rather be making love to your wife? Do something constructive and pleasurable with your time. And the same people that are watching 1,400 hours of television stumble into the church once a week with this mantra, please, pastor, don't preach more than half an hour. I can't sit through more than half an hour of preaching. You want to do the maths? Even churches that preach half an hour, that's 25 hours a year that people give to the Word of God and 1,456 to watching mindless television. Am I passionate about it? Yes, I am. And then we say, oh, we, we want revival. <laughs> why is there no joy in my life? Why can't, why can't I make wise decisions? Why are my kids growing up like this? Why am I f- lacking faith in the areas of my life? Well, my friend... What are you giving yourself to? I don't say this to condemn anyone. I say this to encourage you as deeply as I can. Out of the book of James, therefore James says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit to God. Draw near to Him. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God. Draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. And let your laughter be turned. God says, come back to me. 
So guys, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen of Forest Town Church, I want to say to you the problem is not with the government. The problem is not with the education system. The problem is not even with the recession. It's not even with the dead, lifeless, institutional religion that believes everything and believes nothing at the same time. <laughs> the problem doesn't lie there. The real problem lies with Judah. The real problem lies with God's called out ones. The real problem lies with the born-again believers of God who are just like the world, and you can't tell the difference. So you might say, Ant, your words are very strong. You're offending me. Well, I'm going to be like Isaiah. I'm not going to keep quiet until I see the righteousness of the church and until I see it in my own life. And why, why, what is underlying this? I want to say, for me, there's, there's one thing that underlies this whole scenario with the church. And I, I, I've got two points. This is my second one, and I probably will be another 10 minutes. And then we can go and have some coffee and talk these things through and find out what the score was, all right? <laughs> I do love sport, but not that much. You know what underlies all of this? is that God's people have lost a sense of eternity in their hearts. Have you ever read Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes is an amazing book. It's about a great king called Solomon. It's about he was the wisest king. He was the richest king that Israel ever had and ever knew. And God gifted him with extraordinary wisdom and extraordinary wealth and extraordinary blessing. And in the midst of all of that, he starts to lose sight of God. And so basically, Ecclesiastes is a book of his own backsliding. It's a, it's a book of it's a, his, his story of how he actually falls away. And so he has all this wealth and power, and he says this of himself in chapter 2, verse 9, uh, verse 4. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made, self, I made myself pools from which to water the forest and the growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves that were born in my house. I had great possessions, herds and flocks, more than anyone who'd been before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver, gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, men and women, many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. And so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and my wisdom remained with me. So he starts, this is all the blessing of God. And he tries everything apart from God, and he soon discovers that his life is empty, his life is meaningless. And in verse 11, he says, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, it was all vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained that is new under the sun. All apart from God. And I want to suggest to you, no, I don't want to suggest to you, I want to say that our Western society is desperately trying to be happy and it's completely unfulfilled at the same time. How many of you involved in, in a ministry like Julie's with uh, um, counseling and helping people? And how many of you would agree that mental health patients clog up our hospital system? We're told that we have multiple billions spent on alcohol-related illness in the UK every year. Billions and billions and billions of pounds. I want to say our culture has a lust, and I use that word purposefully, a lust for leisure. A lust for leisure. No matter how many holidays people have, they want more. No matter how many countries people have seen, they want to see another one. And I love traveling. 
But there's this lust in people just for more, 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 more. And at the same time, nobody is happy. <laughs> nobody is happy. What is the tragedy? And I want to say to you, the Bible always makes it plain and makes it simple. This is the simple thing. We were created for friendship with God. We were created for relationship with Jesus. And the first, one of the first recorded conversations in the Bible is this great conversation between God and Adam and Eve around the themes of eternity and the themes of morality. And God is speaking to them in the Garden of Eden. He says, this one thing I say, please listen to me now. Don't eat of the, the tree of the fruit of, uh, of life, the tree of good and evil. Don't eat. He introduces the theme right there. Themes of eternity, themes of what we're living for. And then Solomon comes to this place in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, and he says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. God has set eternity. It's a great gift to us, my friends. It's a great gift to you and I. It's what makes us unique. Unlike animals that surround us, and I saw on the news this week, there's another story now that now they found the missing link to link us to apes. Now they've really found it. Okay, well, we'll see how long that lasts. But anyway, and that's why I believe it's very hard to be an atheist. It's, very, it's a religion, atheism. It's very hard to be a true atheist because inside of us, God has put a voice that is crying out for him all the time in relationship. All the time, all the time. There's a longing in people. Why do I say that? Whenever you study history, you will always see people worshiping something. They always worship something. So they worship a carved image. They worship an idol. They worship a totem pole. But they always are worshiping something. Why? Because eternity is in their hearts. They know that there's something that only God can fulfill in them. Thank you, Keller. You know, the great tragedy is that we've squeezed that sense of eternity out of our hearts. How we've done that? I think we've done it carefully. We've done it with great practice. And we've done it deliberately. Why do I say that? Well, we give ourselves to mind-blowing scientific stuff, technology, and we marvel and we glory in that. And we say, oh, that is fantastic. And there's just unbelievable consumer choice. You can have anything you want. You can have 50 different varieties of coffee. You can have chicken done in 25,000 different ways. There's just like so much choice for the Western world, isn't there? In everything. Luxury, choice, and it's, it's, was, it's inconceivable to people a hundred years ago. They would not believe the choice that we've got right now. And you know what that does? It subtly convinces us that there's nothing really to worry about. There's no real eternity, no heaven and hell, no judgment to come. It's all just a trainload of fuss about nothing. It's kind of like we're quite self-satisfied and happy with the way things are. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, we have a pagan agnosticism about eternity. He's absolutely right. And as I, as I was preparing this week, I just was reflecting and thought about this. When you read the Gospels, how much of Jesus' ministry is not turning people's hearts away from the temporal to eternity? Most of us. And he talks in parables, and he talks about the rich man and Lazarus. He talks about the, the rich man and his barn and the fool. He, he thinks he's going to have wealth, and it's snatched away from him like that. He talks about the, the parable of the talents. There are many, many stories. 25%, people don't like this, 25% of what Jesus talked about was money. 
He was very concerned about how you use your money. 25% of the Gospels is about money. And what does Jesus say? Where your treasure is, that is where your heart is. What you're really living for, where you really put your bucks, the last thing that is converted is people's wallets. It is so hard for them to give to what they cannot see. And you know what I was thinking? We don't really feel anything, most of us don't feel anything about eternity anymore. (laughs) And uh, you can preach, if you preach into this culture, you know what, I think the conversation goes something like this. Christian says, Jesus has come to save sinners. And the sinner says, to save from what? And the Christian says, to save you from hell, to save you from a godless future. And the reply comes back, well, I don't believe in hell. Anyway, I'm not going to worry about going there. And quite, ha- and quite, I'm doing well enough without Jesus right now, and I'm quite happy to go to eternity without him as well. Why? Because all my material needs are met. Every single choice that I could ever have in life is met. So, my friends, I want to encourage you that we trust God this year for something of eternity in our meetings. <laughs> something of eternity in our conversations. Something as of eternity in the priorities of our lives. Something of eternity, we can mention it generally in the gospel, but are our lives characterized by eternity? That we are living for something that is eternal. We are living for treasure in heaven. We are not living for now. And I want to say to you that as I've been reading about revival, one thing that characterizes revival is people begin to rediscover eternity in their hearts. And they begin to live for it. Someone said this, in the 18th century it was described as stomach well alive but soul extinct. Stomach well alive, soul extinct. And you know what changed that in the 18th century? Revival came. God poured out revival. Hundreds and thousands of men and women got saved. And I, I don't know if you know this, but in the mid-18th century with the Whitfield and um, the outpourings, 40,000 people turned up in Kennington Common to hear Whitfield speak. 40,000. That's like the guys that turn out at Lord's to watch the cricket. 40,000 people came to hear Whitfield preach. And you know what they said? This is what someone, um, a direct quote that I, I read in this book. People said when they heard him preach, it said, he heard, they heard him like people hearing for eternity. He spoke about eternal things. He spoke about the kingdom. He spoke about the glory of God. In Wales in the 1904, I said this in the prayer meeting, the Astedfords were closed down. Now, the Astedfords in Wales are big deals. <laughs> that people go and sing and they celebrate their culture and it's a very big deal. Choirs. But they simply closed down, not because that's bad, but because the people were living for something else. They had eternity in their hearts. They wanted to be somewhere else. Duncan Campbell, 1949, said this of the Isle of Luce, one of the revival that broke out. He said, news of what was happening at Barva sped faster than the speed of gossip. Man, that's fast. <laughs> the speed of gossip is like lightning. I mean, that is faster than that. And he said, within a matter of days, the whole neighborhood was powerfully awakened to eternal realities. And work was set aside 
People became concerned with their own salvation, the salvation of friends and neighbors. In the homes, in barns, in tool sheds, on the roadside, in the peat stack, men could be found calling out to God. Oh, eternal things. God, you're saving people. It's about your kingdom. Uh, how many of you knew that in Lowestoft, in the, in the Norfolk, there was a revival in Lowestoft? Did you know that? I didn't know that, but there was in Lowestoft. And the story is that it spread from Lowestoft right up to the Scottish fishing ports. And a newspaper reported at the time that in the small town of 1,500 people, 600 professed faith in Christ. 600. In 1834, it, uh, there was a revival in Birmingham, and, and, and the, the paper said that there was such a profound effect on the, on the impact that the bars and the beer shops were left vocal with lonely grumblers. There was no one in the pubs. Why? Wow, that happens when communities start to think about eternity, when the church of God starts to live for eternity. So, my friends, the story of Hezekiah is this. When he comes to power, 25 years old, he doesn't begin by analyzing why Assyria is rampaging against them as an army. He doesn't analyze why military-wise they are under the cost. What he simply does is this. He comes and he says to the priests, to the Levites, he says, hear me, concentrate yourself and consecrate the house of God and the God of your fathers and carry out this filth from the holy place. He begins with the church. He begins with the called out ones. He says, you get yourself ready. Consecrate yourself. Give yourself wholeheartedly to God. And an amazing revival begins to happen. So friends, I'm trying to encourage you. And I hope, I, we prayed in the, the prayer meeting before that these words would not condemn anyone. I'm not trying to condemn anyone. I'm trying to encourage you that no matter what the state of the church is, it can be much more because of what God does. Amen? And I do want us to be real, because I think most of the church lives like the world that we're supposed to be helping to see saved. Most of us live for now, for the things that we can see, rather than living with eternity in our hearts. Our priorities are distracted. They're directed towards the earth, not towards heaven. Our treasure is on earth. Our treasure is on our bank account. Our treasure is invested in our house. It is invested in our stock market funds. It's not invested in the kingdom. It's not invested in the things of eternity. And revival begins by Christians coming back to reality of eternity in their hearts and their minds, and they start to live differently. Can I ask you, as far as town church, that we make it a concerted focus of our prayer this year, that God just revive eternity in me. Help me to live differently. I know so, so many of you guys work long hours. I, I know that. I know you're traveling in and out of London on the train every day. Or like Chris, to Singapore twice a month. I know that. And it's wonderful that God has blessed you in your places of work. But can I ask that we together just find in the Holy Spirit that we can live for something that is eternal? In the midst of all that busyness, that we can find Him at a deeper level in our lives? that he will revive us and pour himself out, that this church would not know what's hidden. <laughs> huh? That we wouldn't have to ask anymore. There would be so many musicians that they would just, we would just have so many musicians. That we wouldn't have to ask 
for people to volunteer. It would just be the spirit of volunteerism. Why? Because God's doing something in our hearts. We wouldn't have to beg. We've got so many ministry projects this year, and we're going to have a financial report back uh, in October. The, the trustees are putting a report together. But we need more money than we've got. There's so many areas we want to minister out of the church with so many things that we'd like to do here to, to facilitate ministry better. We can't do it. <laughs> our dreams are far bigger than our wallet is. That's a cool thing, because then God can do some stuff. Yeah? I'm, 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 I'm convinced that this, we're going to be surprised by this school, and I'm, now I'm putting myself out on a, on a limb here. Our friends, oh, why don't you stand with me? God, I just want to thank you for this day. I want to thank you for what you're starting in our hearts. And Lord, I don't even know how to conclude this meeting other than to say, Lord, that we are desperate for you. We are desperate for your presence. Lord, we, we want to see revival in our generation. We, we want to see you do that work that you've been describing to us in James of, of our hearts being transformed and you're drawing us into an intimacy with you like we've never experienced before. And so, Lord, I don't know how that's going to happen, but, Lord, we are committed to a journey of your word. We are committed to a journey of your spirit. And we just pray, Lord, that you would pour yourself out upon us. Please, Lord. We cry to you, Lord, that our times together would become increasingly times of tasting eternity. That when we meet in each other's homes just to pray together, that you would transform us. That we would be nothing like the world. That we would be completely uh, different from the world because of your spirit within us. Transforming us, making us more like Jesus. Oh God, I pray boldly that you would transform this church. We are in desperate need of revival, Lord. We can either try very hard or we can depend on you. And so we choose to depend on you, Lord, because we are just so weak and we are just so uh, lacking in strength and wisdom. But, Lord, you are full of those things. And so we come to you as your sons and, we do- and your daughters and we just say, Lord, revive us, please, by your Spirit. Do something in us that would, would absolutely take our breath away and do something through this church that delights this community and transforms this community. Jesus, I pray in your precious name that you would do that for the sake of your glory, and for the sake of your church. And we simply bless you this morning. You are good and wonderful in every way to us. Lord, be with us this afternoon as we gather, some of us just to talk about the future of this church, help us to make the right decisions. We want to see life come. We want to see you flood us with wisdom from heaven that comes as we simply seek you. And we thank you for the future. Thank you for every good thing that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.